So I recently read a book by Susan Casey. It is called The Devil's Teeth, A True Story of Obsession and Survival Among America's Great White Sharks. <laughs> it is from 2005. And it is set in what YouTube tells me is pronounced the Farallon Islands. They sit in the Pacific Ocean. So, like, if you were to leave the Bay Area, like, leave the San Francisco Harbour and just keep going, eventually you would find these very jagged, rocky, uh, you know, hence the the devil's teeth, islands just kind of, like, sticking out of the ocean and it's very stormy and dark there and essentially this place is a nature reserve and it's a a place where scientists do research into animals and it's I don't know it has like some kind of very special unusual features like evolutionarily I think one of the chief features of these islands um is that there are a bunch of great white sharks that hang out there, but they're not like any great white sharks. They are like massive, old. There's like a gang of them that are especially massive and old and female. And there's a nickname for them. I think they're just called like the ladies or something that the researchers use. I kind of just looked into it because I really like, uh, you know, shark media of high and low. and in between. So I'm basically going to enjoy it, whatever the nature of the content is. (laughs) And so this book, I was like, oh, the devil's teeth. I was like, I assumed that it meant the teeth of the shark and that it was going to be very like lurid and silly, Um, which even Peter Benchley's book that like Jaws is kind of based on is like not even that lurid and silly. Instead, what it is, is like actually a very fine, like narrative nonfiction, basically like an incredibly long feature where she describes going to this research centre, which is really difficult to get to. It's really difficult to, like, go up the ladders to the top of the rocks. Uh, There's people who stay there, but it's, like, horrific because you're just getting shit on by birds, like, 100% of the time that you're outside. The storms are hideous. And they're constantly, you know, like, their only job is to, like, try not to fall off the rocks and then go and look at these, like, massive killer animals. And, you know, she's, like, not one of them initially so it is a little bit of like a fish out of water you know I'm interning as a great white shark (laughs) researcher (laughs) essentially instead of what I thought I was gonna get I received a very atmospheric old style feature like you know I went to this place and here are the people I met and this is what it felt like of a place so that is extraordinarily vertical so these you know rocks rear out of the water and they they form these kind of like deep enclosed areas but like so deep around them and she spends a lot of time talking about the birds there are these one particular species you may have seen them on tv they're like these little screaming gray creatures and they're just like constantly breeding on the rocks and they shit everywhere (laughs) and you know it's hideous and then Also, the father's going around, like, pecking about half the babies to death. So it's, like, (laughs) just, like, a, yeah, shit and murder, uh, shit and murder procession for that element of the book. And then the shark stuff ends up being quite gentle. So it's, it's very strange. It's absolutely not what I expected it to be. And I love a writer who is willing to 
or interested in taking on a hackneyed subject, not really trying that hard to present yourself as doing anything particularly original, but then in fact doing something quite original, if that makes sense. Oh, and then the other really great thing is that towards the end, it gets into these turf wars, which have happened between other groups of shark researchers and people who were like filming sharks, you know, like trying to get them to like jump out the water, but then accidentally training them to attack certain types of like shapes because it's just one very like isolated community i think of the sharks here so like these groups of the people on the islands that work there are very mad about other people coming in like talking to their sharks and like teaching them stuff about humanity that they're like forbidden to know um so it's all kind of controlling <laughs> and yet those people who feel that way live on the island and they're like i know that like i'm not friends with the sharks like i know that they don't care about me but they know who i am like it's it's a beautiful like, you know, like a really beautiful like oddly thematically related to uh, the shipping news because of its you know gloomy outcrop vibes but i recommend it is it in american waters yes yeah uh it is in Oh, you can see. Oh, you can see a Fata Morgana mirage of them sometimes from the mainland, which is why there were like people who lived in America, you know, before colonization knew that they were there because you can kind of see them, but no one mm. like went there and lived there because they were like inhospitable, inhospitable indeed. Wildly. And people would go there to just like get some seals and stuff. <laughs> but people, oh, nuclear waste dump. That's fun. It was a nuclear waste dump for a bit. It sounds really good. I have so many questions about it that I think would be best answered by just a- reading the book because I want to know just, it, <sighs> when did people first first start camping out there and how long do they stay and how long well, do they stay? That's the thing. Like, they can't, they can't stay really very long and you can't just like hop on and off. It's a whole bloody operation. And... Yeah. Do people die there much, often, I don't ever? think so. You know what? Everyone's just going to have to read it to find out the facts, which clearly slid <laughs> off my, the, my duck's brain. That's okay. Duck body you mind. You training. Um, while I in- strongly internalise the uh, impression of enormous creatures swimming around under the surface. And they're so big. Oh, my God. I have since seen videos of these particular sharks. And they have names, which is cute. And the way she just kind of a little bit writes it like a Cosmo uh, story, except that the celebrities are sharks. That's good. Old fashioned magazine yeah. writing, like strong. Yeah, magazine exactly, writing. exactly. Like she doesn't let herself off being in any of the scenes, and she always seems kind of silly because. It's quite difficult what she's, like, trying to do and not really, like, doing amazing at it. But the writing's wonderful. I think my husband would love it. So it sounds like a good book to buy and then leave around. Absolutely. And he he will... Because it's nice to have... It's probably not the same with you and Lola because you read so much, like, e-read stuff. Mm. But... You know, the second something is sitting out and it's in our house, but it's like, it's mine, not yours. It immediately becomes like, how interesting. But I, you know, I'd completely forgotten about The Devil's Teeth because it was such a an easy, so drinkable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unlike, you know, like the Annie Pro is, is very readable, but it, it sends me to my own writing a lot. But this book didn't like send me back into my own thoughts at all. 
friends. She was like, That's nice. Come and stay with me in this boat. I really like that distinction too. Yeah. That seems, it's like a, a very specific type of reading list <laughs> slash syllabus could be put together along those two lines. Yeah. I, I want to read it. It sounds really good. You're going to like it. Well, I have been wanting to d- discuss with you this book. It's called The Idea of You by Robin Lee, who is an actress as well as a writer. This is her first book, I think. And it's a romance. Although apparently she didn't really want it marketed as a romance. Or she didn't want it marketed maybe to romance readers. It could be marketed as a romance, but not to people who like them. So the premise is this divorcee has a young daughter, like 12 years old, maybe 13 years old, something, who loves a particular boy band. And the woman's ex is a rich guy, rich, powerful guy. So I guess he gets the daughter and her friends backstage passes and tickets. And they go see this boy band perform. And in the course of the meet and greet and then being backstage, one of the boy band members who is 20 takes an interest in the mom who is 39, almost 40. And the boy is essentially Harry Styles, pretty nakedly, even for myself, someone who does not follow Harry Styles. He's Harry Styles. Um, which this is a common um, problem I have. I don't know if it's fully a problem. But a lot of romances are basically fan fiction. So if you know their origins, you're reading the book and you can't conjure up your own person because you know this is fan fiction based on Adam Driver. Well, the, the, uh, but Star that's Wars. Just our problem for living in the time we do. You know, in, a, in a 500 years, that will have sloughed off. And people will be that's like, this, true. Was the, this was the pinnacle of literature. A lot of things <laughs> will have fallen away in just 50 years. But I find it unpleasant to kind of be reading and having the intrusive mm-hmm. image of a celebrity entering my brain. I don't like that. But um, so this kid is just so charming. He convinces her to hook up with him and spend time with him. And then they start falling in love. I'm so pissed and for the daughter. Well, that's exactly the issue. They start getting serious enough that the mom has to break it to the daughter because they're being photographed by paparazzi (gasps) and all these gossip blogs are talking about them. Because, of course, the band he's in is basically One Direction because he's Terry Styles. Um, Well, then you would know. That would hurt. Um, But the book is interesting because I really ultimately hated it. But I also hated it in a way that I felt compelled uh-huh. by. There's, it's, there's an incredible amount of pretension, maybe, in the book. Because the, the main character is French, French-American. Uh-huh. And, of course, she's very wealthy. And she's very beautiful. And everyone's always telling her how beautiful she is. And she's interested in art. So she's kind of pompous about her art. And... She's not likable, but I did feel sorry for her that the situation was so stacked against her, even though she's also having mind-blowing sex. It doesn't sound that tragic. It's hot. I know. It's there well, there are worse things for sure. But she's just having this incredible sex with this boy who is so good at it, even though he's 20, which like I'm not gonna say it's never happened. <laughs> 
<laughs> she's 39. <laughs> she's 39. Where's she been? She's and, been in like um, a cupboard. Where's she been? She Well, she was in her marriage right, for a long marriage, time. Marriage cupboard. And then apparently she's been divorced for years, but she was celibate. Hold on. That, so Harry Styles. <laughs> the book kind of implies that this character kind of finds people who have simply not had sex before and blows their mind <laughs> by simply having sex with them adequately. The suggestion is that he basically has a fetish for older women. Mm. He has a taste, at least, a preference for older women. Because this is Olivia Wilde and Harry right, Styles, right, right. right? I did bookmark a few <laughs> a few weird things. So maybe I have mentioned this before. I get a lot of discomfort, like secondhand embarrassment when an author writes something. We did talk about, I think with maybe Bridges of Madison County, where an author has set up a situation where they're writing something and a character or the rest of the world says, what a spectacular poem. Or <laughs> yeah. So tell me if I'm wrong. This is so incredibly stupid. So Selene if I'm saying her name right, the main character, she's hanging out with the boys. And one of the other boys, probably the one closest to her boy. What's her boy's name? Hayes. Hayes. Wow. Starts with a yeah. just like her. So he's closest with Oliver. Oliver is kind of a sleazeball. And um, Oliver is talking to his girlfriend. Oliver furrowed his brow, snuffed out a cigarette, and then pulled her onto his lap. Charlotte, you know me. Models are like toffee. They often seem like a great idea, especially on holiday. But once you get them in your mouth, you remember that they're cloyingly sweet and they stick to your teeth. Plus, they've no nutritional value whatsoever. But they're certainly very pretty in the window. And then Solène, who is listening to this, thinks, It is likely I had never heard anything more perfect. We laughed for a long time. Isn't that <laughs> unforgivable? <laughs> Hold on. are they supposed to be British? Just checking. Okay, yes. yeah, I could... Yes! Uh, yeah, because firstly, like, toffee, saying, like, toffee, right? And then, because that's... Yeah, and then say, on holiday. So when you've got toffees on holiday. <laughs> I can't... I cannot imagine sitting in a room with a real rich... 20... Asshole. 19... Yeah, 19, 20-year-old, and he says, oh, models are just like candy, you know? There's no nutritional value there. And I'm just like, oh, yeah delightful it's so insipid it reminds me i saw it on my instagram for you page which the other day was it i don't know some digital detritus that was like these two pictures were posted on the same day and it was Haley bieber with some other like male celebrity non-justin bieber like looking really good and then Justin Bieber posted like a handwritten or like a, like a murderer's letter of like cut out things being like people who are rich and famous seem like they're so happy. But actually, it's just all the same shit or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this does actually kind of like illuminate things for me about why young people or like why people are so into like celebrity breakups and stuff. And I think part of it is the fantasy of like, if I was incredibly wealthy, I would still have the same ish problems, which means that there's no real fundamental difference between us. There's something gulf crossing about that of like putting yourself in the imaginary perspective because these are like fictional characters in the first place. Like, Harry Styles in the media is, I'm sure, like, just as fictional as Carrie Bradshaw. 
I guess I was interested also in the fact that she does not end up with Hayes, even though he's in love with her and really wants to be with her. She says, it's too hard. My daughter is really unhappy (laughs) and we get all this shit and I don't like it and we're not going to be together. So this is a a fantasy reimagining of the Olivia Wilde, Harry Styles storyline, which ends in the exultant triumph of... Olivia Wilde, which did not happen. All this crazy shit that happened with her ex-husband. I don't know. I feel like she did not seem to be in control of that story. I feel like it was very punishing to her. And that this seems like a kind of wish fulfillment of she would have... Well, there are are so many romances about having a celebrity fall in love with you. There are so many contemporary romance books. And I find them intolerable. I've read them because I keep thinking this premise could work and I just find them unbearable. Yeah, but Charlotte, think about what if you had never, what if you had lived a completely different life (laughs) and had never met anybody famous? I don't know, like, is there a way that you can imagine that frisson existing? Because I can remember it from being like 12 and having weird fantasies of seeing someone from the band I liked or being seen somehow. <laughs> it's one of, it's a low stakes thing to say. I think I could write a better celebrity Go romance then. novel than any of the ones I've read. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know that I care. I don't know that I care enough to do it because, because my whole thing is like, have fun with it. Don't be so humorless. It's the most unimaginative version of what that would look like. You know? Yeah, but you haven't done one, so hers is 100% better than yours. Do you know what I mean? This wasn't the type of encouragement I was expecting. I'm sorry. I do think that you should write one, but do you know what the celebrity Maybe. would be? I would love it if it was like you and then the celebrity was... Oh, who would I pick for you? Sorry, I asked you and then yeah, immediately was No, like, no, no, no. Pick, pick. Okay, I'm going to pick you out of I think my problem is just that there's a level of fame at at which I don't find somebody attractive there's something about the fame that precludes me even finding them attractive and and the but that's because you it's not it you have some kind of like insight what that might actually be like as opposed to it being no I'm serious I'm dead serious if you know like your understanding of reality interferes with the fantasy it doesn't work I should I should be required to puzzle on that for a little while. How would I make a celebrity romance novel not god awful, not intolerable, insulting? Yeah. Garbage? How would I do it? And can it be can done? Can it be done? <laughs> That's me going into the lab, putting on my white coat. Gosh. You know that it does remind me of that book. You know the one that was supposedly about Philip Roth. Um, um, Lisa, Ace, Ace yeah, Symmetry? Asymmetry. Did you like it? Yeah, I really liked it at the time, and I, I've thought about it off and on since. And what have you thought about? Well, weirdly, the thing that I think about is, I decided really fast that I liked it, and in retrospect, I've had conversations with people who've been like, "Oh, well, it was a bit silly that it was like the no- you know notes on an affair." like squished in with another half of the book which is about like 9-11 it's not about 9-11 it's about a man being detained yeah who and I think he might be from Afghanistan 
I can't remember, but he's definitely in a subaltern position, like politically, ethnically, like the setup, detention setup. But I do, I I, don't, I remember it like kind of working because the scale was the scale difference, like the balance or the non-balance, the asymmetry, if you will, was really satisfying because, okay, the idea of like, right, like you're lying in bed with this like wizened guy the idea of there being this kind of like special mystical value inside that romance because of the how this man is seen right like of what his status is to other people is kind of like a mystery the book has i think does a really great treatment of what it's like to be suddenly up close with somebody that you had some kind of like def- definition of previously because she didn't desire him from afar but she had an awareness of him from afar and a lot of it is like a little bit pathetic some of it's very sweet some of it's very like oh my god the alien in that way that like I think for me reading like heterosexual intimacy is the most interesting when it's like what is happening <laughs> and with that book sometimes you're just like what the fuck is happening and this other book you know sometimes the logic of heterosexuality because it depends on all of these strange arbitrary bits of the history of gender like sutured together like it doesn't make sense and it doesn't really work in fiction i think the reason i ultimately find the book unforgivable is that it is humorless And I think that the way to pull off a celebrity romance would either be as a satire, just really lean in, or maybe calling on kind of like 60s, 70s, 80s era groupies slash muse. Because I think the tendency nowadays is to have the man be this sort of adoring, faithful guy. And if you want him to be a rock star or something, it doesn't feel that plausible that he's so faithful and monogamous and that he just wants to be devoted to you and he just wants to be like homemaking with you. So that tension is confusing. I love reading the groupie memoirs because I love sluts. So it would be so satisfying. That's one of the other issues with a lot of contemporary straight romance. They do not want their female main character to That's be a slut. That's also why the, actually right, should the have, logic... Yeah is so flawed it's not transferring properly to the imaginary world because of these aspirational fictions inside gender <laughs> none of which makes sense <laughs> so this is the thing you're the so right you're so right always collapse because uh none of it is actually like based on anything real anyway except for, the, me, sex, right? except for the sex and like the reality yeah. of like right. being hot in a room together and that is so rarely written well <laughs> and as you say like groupies right that genre weirdly is where like sexy women have allowed to like use language uh i don't know eve babbittsley you're hot about like power dynamics and being a hot woman and i've said this to you before that like i love reading the very very rare writing by a woman about being hot and you were so good at it you were like the star of that and I even as you were saying this I was like yeah like in that amazing scene in Prostitute Laundry where I don't remember the context I remember that in the the narrator is wearing a black and white (laughs) dress and walking across like the bar like a lounge area it's at the strip club yeah yeah it could be the strip club but I remember the phrase 
like knowing that I looked slim as a knife walking through the room and I was like being the (laughs) knife I'm dead fucking serious this still reverberates through my mind because like to move through space it's all yeah the all male space and to be the one woman even though it wasn't the strip club right they're all on the stage but like the one woman in the mix but it's also like the dress and like the being in the dress and the motion through space and i just thought that the way that you i don't i just thought it was brilliant and i would i too like (laughs) long to read more of that kind of writing it's very it's it's not common and the fun thing about the groupies i think is that they have more than one story, so they can just gossip. Oh, interesting. That's the whole thing, you know? It should be fun. If you're hooking up with a celebrity, whoever he is, however bad or good at sex he is, however he looks, you should be able to keep the story, right? You, When you walk away, when it ends, you have your story. You have your gossip. To me, that's what you get out of it. Gossip is good. I guess the reason why I was comparing it to... What you wrote is about the idea of being able to narrate your effect on a situation. And that is got in gossip as well, being like, when I arrived, this happened, and he saw me. And then, like, this happened. Right. So, yeah, they come together, <laughs> for sure, for sure. We're joined today by the wonderful Lydia Kiesling. She's the author of The Golden State, a 2018 National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree and a finalist for the VCU Cabell First Novelist Award. Her extremely exciting second novel, Mobility, uh, has recently been published and is continuing to be published by Crooked Media Reads in uh, just this past August. Her essays and nonfiction have been published in outlets, including The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker Online and The Cut and um, many places. Well, we're so delighted to have you here. The idea for this podcast, which was all Charlotte, is essentially just where we have a catch-up, like what have you been reading conversation with each other, and then also um, with eminent guests. I'm so honored to be one of those guests. Um, It's funny because the thing that I chose, I like fretted about this really quite a lot. (laughs) Well tried. It's a lot of pressure. (laughs) I was both trying to expend no energy whatsoever while also having like a mental motor running in my mind for like the last week it's one of those things that like it is quite it's a low stakes choice but i think that one always wants it to be both like spontaneous but also like the perfect elegant you know like Mm -hmm. oh just off the top of my head i thought perfect thing it's like your myspace bio you know it's supposed it's like very (laughs) very like studied while also casual (laughs) do you know the new york times has that column that's sort of like what you've been reading or something oh, yeah. and they ask different people the buy, you know the buy the book i'm sure i'll never have one you might but it's obviously like there's one that was so pretentious i've never forgotten it and i'll share it with you both but it's so pretentious like once you read it you will never forget it ever and it honestly sounds like she hired like a cabal of academics and was sort of like what will make me seem you know the most learned and like the most <laughs> kind of like chic and it's humiliating really like i never want anyone to feel like they have to do work for this podcast including joe and i i, I just work. want it to be fun like the way you talk about books with friends but i can understand how if you're a guest you're like this is my one chance to pick a book and what if it represents my entire taste and personality what should it be so what, what is your book i'm dying to know my understanding of the assignment was that it's like a book that we feel strongly about in some way. Yes. So it's actually yes. not, I, I like intentionally did not revisit the book because 
it's been popping up in my mind recently as something that would be so comforting to return to, but I'm sort of like scared to. And the book um, is Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos. Um, and yeah, that's what that's what I have chosen. That was a very like Lucky Jim announcement, but I also am terrified to go back to it because what if it's a horrible indictment of who we were? Yes. I mean, and I remember it that like, I, I have such a vivid like recollection of it. And of course, that, and then I was like, well, maybe what if I get it wrong when I'm trying to explain it? And then the like Lucky Jim fandom will attack me and be like, she was never a true fan because she doesn't know their last names. Um, but the I subreddit do. will tell you apart. Lucky Jim subreddit <laughs> is waiting with knives out. This is the best out. thing. No one, no one cares, right? Like no one is out there defending yeah. the good name of um, anyone, Amos, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's that's true. And I and I never and, and like the other books that I've read by King's Amos have just I've, to me have been like, what is this trash? Like, mm-hmm. how, this is not Lucky Jim Aliber. Um, yeah, I've just been thinking about it recently because I'm like, I'm a very big rereader or I was at least like I'm an only child. I was, a you know, very bookish and really like took so much solace. And I had this kind of set of books that were, you know, I've read millions of times. Um, and I was thinking how I don't have that so much anymore and it's because of like phone you know as one and also tv like i i have replaced rereading with like re-watching prestige dramas in some cases um but this i don't know the last few weeks have been so shitty and i like realized that i don't have a copy of lucky jim anymore and was wondering where it was and then was like i would love to have that and then i was thinking like yeah but it'd also be even though i, I i'm like I can hold the, I already know sort of the problems with it, like, and hold them in my mind. I can't tell whether revisiting it would like, I don't know. It's just because I, it, it's just such a, um, it's such a like classic dirtbag novel that I think many like other dirtbag novels flow from um, in a lot of respects. Absolutely. Well, Lydia, how did you first find the book? How did it come into your life? I think it must have been on my parents' bookshelf. Um I'm trying, I think I probably read it first in high school. It may have been in college. I sort of blur together like those time periods, but, um, I, yeah, there were a lot of, my parents like had a lot of books and there are certain, certain like key texts that my dad like passed to be like the poetry of Philip Larkin. So he liked like angry British men, I think. Taste. <laughs> he had taste. <laughs> yes. So I, yeah, I, I read it and I and it was like the same period of life that I had also read and become obsessed with and like could also have used this as for this book with um, Bridget Jones's diary, which is like a text that brings me so much like anguish in many ways um, when I think about it also. And I'm like, what? I'm like, which one brings me more anguish and why? Like, what? <laughs> oh my God. But truly the two genders, right? Like Lucky Jim and Bridget yes. Jones. Like, <laughs> yeah, they are. I'm like, that is a, a lineage right there. Um, and yeah, so it was sometime around then. So I was like reading Bridget Jones constantly. I was like, this is so me. I'm so Bridget coded. <laughs> but also, I'm so Jim coded. <laughs> um, And yeah, I was like, I was a terrible student. I was a horrible student in high school. I went to a boarding school because my um, parents were, my dad was in the foreign service. And I just, and it was like full of people who really like are good at 
school and also like very upstanding, like moral character, the whole boy, like that was truly part of the ethos of the school. And, um, and I was just like an immoral character and very, really struggled to like do schoolwork. And so, and, and then in college, you know, pulled it together a little bit, but still just like did not excel. But so then reading about Lucky Jim, which is like this, this young academic who has many enemies in the what I'm what I believe is a red brick university to like has some specific cultural meaning that I don't like necessarily grasp but is not like what I imagine to be a, an elite space but still like all academic spaces has like all the sort of pretentiousness within the departmental setting and like petty rivalries and war and so Jim is like his department head is i think his name is professor welch and he is very horrible and he's always like giving jim you know grief and jim is supposed to prepare a lecture on the topic of mary england um which i also like don't really know what that means but it's just like mary m-e-r-r-i-e and sort of like england in the past (laughs) and this is like hanging (laughs) over him the whole time that he has to do this lecture and then when he does deliver the lecture it's like a beautiful set piece where he's drunk but doesn't like really realize he's drunk and (laughs) just does this horrible like offensive performance and then there's also a love story and that's like the thing that's hard about the book is that he has like this relationship with this i think what might be called as like a hysteric uh (laughs) named margaret peel and she has like bad shoes and is like a, a a lady scholar and she's very tedious and always trying to entrap him in like a romance but then meanwhile is like the sexy woman named Christine, who is the fiance of Professor Welch's son, who's like maybe some kind of like war hero. I don't know. Christine is there. Jim falls in love with her. His whole thing is like how to defeat Professor Welch, how to win Christine, how to get Margaret off his back, how to do the Mary England lecture. And then yeah, that's and I was like, and it's just so and I identified so strongly with him, but also wanted to like be Christine and like be like, oh, I can never be a Margaret. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of like gender matters in there. I that is so fascinating. Those books that you read as a woman where you're like, this is a cautionary woman. I have to make sure to never be in my life. Yeah. Um, this particular book is I have so many so many uh, aspects of it. The red brick thing, first of all, and red bricks are former polytechnics, so like vocational schools that got granted university status. A lot of funding was poured into them. So, and this is like post-war, so there's a lot of like reconstruction budget going into it. You know, huge explosion in secondary education in general, like lots of people getting degrees who wouldn't have. And this has definitely caused like a huge kind of like class comedy issue because obviously the new schools became instantly associated with like first like sociology, you know, and structuralism and then like post-structuralism. So and mm-hmm. then obviously all like the feminist and the linguist, you know, like the linguistic theory people, like all the annoying people that you might have to deal with. If you so I say annoying from the perspective of like this kind of um, blunt instrument of a medieval history lecturer who represents like such a limited worldview on this kind of like sophisticated aspirations of what other people around them are doing. But there's also a very deep thing about the whole like Merry England uh, shit about like the novel set in the village. So like Barbara Pym novels, 
they'll always be old people and vicars that are named after like characters from medieval literature. There's (laughs) so much coded into it, but it's essentially like like a comedy of comedy of manners. Is that what you'd say? Like a an comedy of of an institution at in a very funny position of overlaid social, maybe like overlaid hierarchies. Well, and it's, I mean, because it does, I I also, like, remember, like, shortly, also, like, after college, a little bit later, I read the novels of David Lodge. And, you know, those are, like, known to be, like, the true, you know, kind of campus novels and get into some of the, the yeah, the sort of, like, disciplinary, like, intrigues and development in a more, I think, like, overt way. And I, but also are in that same tradition of, like, humor and, like, fecklessness and, and I feel like Lucky Jim was kind of, yeah, it's like a more, it's like accessible in a way that those like David Lodge novels maybe are a little bit more like you need to understand more of what's going on. But you can be like really young and read Lucky Jim and be like, this guy got an assignment and he doesn't want to do it. And everybody around him sucks. Like it's basically <laughs> like Faulty Towers. The premise is like yes. Faulty Towers, which is like furious yes. hotel owner. Basil, yeah. Which, um, God, I watched that again not that long ago. It's so unbelievably racist. I didn't remember. It is. It's very bad. So yeah, bad. I recently also revisited that because that was a thing that I too, like that was a, a videotape that we had. Yeah, just like all the things that you have, like what do your parents have around? Like that's going to be very formative. Um, and so, yeah, I was watching it and I was like, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, just casually watch that when i was like seven years old and that it's probably lurking back there somewhere um but yeah like lucky jim is essentially kind of like a sort of fuck boy novel right in the sense Mm -hmm. that he's very alienated in the classic um i'm literally walking around reading Camus to signify how much i don't want to talk to you right are there any are there any campus novels where the protagonist is at home in the university environment? Yes, uh, Disgrace. Oh, I haven't read Disgrace. I was thinking, like, what are the campus novels? Oh, uh, Possession. So, like, Possession is the main one I can think of, and I'm like, well, one of them feels very at home in the. You know, we were we talked about our very first recording ever. We talked about the secret history. Oh yeah, and obviously, it's like sometimes you're. You're on the campus as a student. Sometimes you're there as a teacher. I still have so many books to read. I know. Isn't it exciting? I have a few. I have like maybe five I haven't gotten around to. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm saving them (laughs) for a special occasion. (laughs) For your deathbed, you'll be like, ah, finally. Campus novels. Yeah. You know, the reason I don't think The Secret History is really a campus novel is because the protagonist is too like glamorized, you know, like they're Mm -hmm. too overwhelmed because they don't feel comfortable. But to me, I just feel like that's every book I've ever read set in a, in an institution, like a school, an educational institution, right? Even high school boarding, it's always someone who does not feel like right, like the in. line of beauty, right? Well, there's mm-hmm. like the college yeah. thing. What's the Evelyn War one about the that school? There's a f- the the ones that I've read. I mean, I've read Brides. I revisited that like a, a fave, oh, yeah, that's but a I think I've only ever, and that's all yeah. like there's so many ways to be different here. Yes. <laughs> Although yeah. I do think that, you know, in Brideshead Revisited, is it that novel where there are various scenes where they sit on the lake hat and have like funny conversations about philosophy and about like, is the cow there or not? 
undergraduates having pretentiously lofty conversations and how annoying that is, I think is like part of this kind of like comic campus novel that Lucky Jim is definitely a part of. And like that in itself is satisfying because like, you know, like the inflated sense of self-importance of the lecturer and his minions, that is kind of an like ever renewing source of joy to like watch people get taken down a peg. <laughs> yeah, well, I think and I think anyone who has ever been in like a workplace can sort of finds solace in them because it's a very sort of like specific skewering of a hierarchy in a workplace. And I like actually, you know, did work at a university and like witnessed so much just nonsense from, you know, it's like the adage about the people becoming like monsters over the smallest possible amount of power. Yeah. So I think, but, but then any workplace you've had where you're just like an underdog. And so you're like, oh my God, bosses are horrible and so that i think lucky jim like maps very well onto that because even if you don't totally understand the dynamics of the workplace like it's very clear it's like this is the man who's in charge and he and we're gonna make fun of like his i mean he's i just remember i think there's a scene where he encounters his nemesis professor welch he's like trying to get through a revolving door but he doesn't understand that it's like going the wrong direction. And so he just like witnesses him like being stuck. There's a lot of sort of slapstick like that. When this is a little <laughs> bit, well, this is relevant. When I went for my interview when I was like 18, which I was like so oh overconfident God. about because I'd just been like pumping myself up for Aww. a long time. So I would, the whole thing was like, the whole thing is embarrassing. But the most embarrassing <laughs> part was that I wore a trench coat like an old-fashioned trench coat that I had gotten from this one really great charity shop that is next to this college and I was like so proud of myself I got this like great coat but then the person who interviewed me he picked up my the jacket at the end to hold it up for me to put it on and I had just made like this like great final like white like stupid wisecrack about like Forster or something and I was like this is going fabulously I'm gonna like leave on this moment but the it lining of the trench coat was ripped because it I hadn't like repaired it or anything. So immediately my arms went into the lining of the coat oh. as as <laughs> he's holding it there and he can't like understand like why I'm not like putting my arms into the you know what I mean? <laughs> that's very that's yeah. that's that's lucky Jim coded. Yeah. So lucky Jim so coded <laughs> and because to to be made absurd. In that way, to not be able to get out of a situation gracefully and you become like a caged animal that just has to like leave. I do think that some of them, like the best academic fiction is about that, right? About the cage. Mm -hmm. There's a scene, I mean, one of the, I think the, the thing that the book is probably most sort of known for is the hangover scene. It has like a very famous hangover scene where he has gone to a house party at the Welch's um, with lots of people, including Margaret. And he gets riotously drunk. And then, like, this is one of those moments where you're like, oh, this part sucks. Because then he gropes Margaret and she's unhappy. That's what he remembers from his drunken, like, bacchanal is that he also, like, semi-violated Margaret. But, of course, you never think about that. You just think about Margaret. I believe they're, yeah, he calls them the quasi-velvet shoes. And just how, how tragic Margaret is and her style and affect. But then, yeah, he wakes up and it's like his his mouth was like, had been used by a small animal of the night, first as its urinal, then as its mausoleum. And then he's just like trying to figure out how to survive this hangover. And also 
he realizes he set their bed on fire in the night while he was drunk. And so he's trying to razor off pieces of the sheet to hide the damage of what he's done. And it's, yeah, it's like divide. Just look at the, look at him. He's stuck in this, in this goofy situation. Like, how's he going to get out of it? And anyone who's ever like been drunk and ashamed and then hung over and ashamed, it's very like potent <laughs> recognition. How much time does the book spend with Jim? How much time does it span? It's very short. It's very short. And it probably is like a couple of weeks, I would think. It's not, it's sort of like. Not even a whole semester necessarily. No, I don't think so. Kind of builds up to the end of the academic year or like the end of the semester. Yes. To the lecture. And- on Mary England. God. <laughs> I'm trying to like reduce my thoughts on the whole weird thing of the quaint English tradition and its fetishization within these, uh, yeah, these little rat cages of people fighting desperately over taxpayer funded, you know, just like immense competition for scarce resources, which I guess is also what a guy waking up with a terrible hangover and the burning sheet is an immense competition for resources. Um, But that is something kind of ruined by its fans about Lucky Jim and that part in particular, because it is kind of like, oh, my favorite movie is uh with Nell and I and like I love you know you know what I mean like a slight kind of like ooze represents the extent of like transgressions yep. that I can imagine and so like he's yep. such a legend yeah which is you know Bridget Jones similarly it's like very good point so very good point so much of it is like I mean, that is also tied to like sort of this like femininity and like withholding of either like indulging or withholding of pleasures. But it's like the alcohol, her little tick marks of like the alcohol unit. And then whenever she sort of goes over and like gives in, it's like she just drinks a ton. And then it like has all the little mini pinwheel pita things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, wow, it must be so hard to be actually like British and then be subjected to people like having an idea of Britishness that is solely sourced from like this collection of like six novels. <laughs> oh, well, no, absolutely not. No, 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 no. Like, whatever. But you read more Kingsley Amos after Lucky Jim. Was that your first? I remember or... tr- trying because I was like, well, anything that I anything that's this good, you know, I'm. I'm have to read whatever else there is and then i think i tried like one and it was just so it was so like airless and sort of mean-spirited i wish i could remember what it was i I have i remember like what the cover looked like and buying it in a used bookstore and feeling so excited and then even i mean there's like an essential mean-spiritedness to lucky jim but it's just like it's all about the execution you know you can carry off a lot of nastiness like if you I, I do think he manages some sort of like sublime humor passages. And I'll just remember whatever the next one I got was like, all you felt was like the nastiness and not any of that like sublime. But I yeah. haven't, I mean, I think he wrote a ton of books. So I, I, I gave up like fairly quickly. Um, and then I was like, well, let me read The Sun. Yeah. <laughs> I've yes. read like a couple of Martin Amos novels, but um yeah, I, I did not become a completist of Kingsley Amos. Did you like Martin any better or it was sort of less maybe? He didn't write anything that... It was different. I mean, I am also not... I have... I I read... I think I read London Fields and then 
I mean, so much. I, it's so funny to look at life and realize that like most the bulk of the books you'll ever read like took place in this like short period, maybe in your early 20s, like late teens. In my case, I mean, I still read books, but I'm so much slower. There's so many things competing and I don't have the like I used to literally just sort of compete with myself to see how fast I could read a book, like how many books I could read. And and of course, like I have retained so few of them because that's not actually like always the best way to read. But because I was reading to pass time and to like be entertained mm-hmm. in a sense, it didn't really matter that much. Um, so, yeah, I had like I the books, the Martin Amos books that I read were in that in that period of like my early 20s. I just wanted to like become culturally uh fluent or as cl- you know like in any way i could so it was like well i know people read him like let me you know let me sample one of each of all these names that i've heard but then it's like i and then i always end up reading like the same six books i read iris murdoch is one of my favorites and i read the sea the sea like over and over again and yeah i don't know sometimes i'm just like think that we always just want to read those same few books that meant so much to God, us yeah i know <laughs> Do you have some book in mind when you when you imagine your daughter's getting to a certain age and you feel like I can't wait to share this? I was just gonna say because you're gonna have to do this all again in like surely that you end up like reading one ends up like rereading through one's kids, (laughs) right? Doesn't that happen? I don't know. I don't. You know, I'm trying to actually let go of my like hope and aspiration for that, as with so many ideas that I have about parenting, because. A, like, so my my older child is is almost nine and she is a huge reader, but she does not, she has not yet, like, fallen in love with chapter books. She reads graphic novels, like, almost exclusively cool. and loves them. And they have, like, you know, very, like, sophisticated storylines. And she's, she'll go, she opens <laughs> the same ones over and over. And she's like, this is my favorite part of this one. And it's so interesting because it's, like, both a narrative, but also a visual component to how she's thinking of, like, this is comforting to me to revisit. The only, a few books that we have, I have read some chapter books to her that she has liked, and they have been The Phantom Tollbooth, which is, like, fave of mine, and The Thirteen Clock. She really liked that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, but but so much of this stuff, it's like revisiting it. I, I remember I started to read Harriet the Spy to her. And like, I still, I have a lot of love for Harriet the Spy and like what, how that book like does not condescend to children in any way. But it's also like, there's just so much stuff in those books where you're like, God, I feel like I need to annotate it as I'm reading because there's a lot of stuff about bodies and like fatness. And, and like that book is so, is so part of a certain class structure that I don't want to be I don't want to be such a pedant that I'm like reading and being like her parents are rich by the way but like (laughs) you're like we're both thinking the same thing right she's rich (laughs) I'm just trying to explain it's just such a foreign world for her this you know this like family that lives in a brownstone in that era in New York and and so I'm just like I I don't know being a parent is weird you're just just like you both feel like you need to explain things but then you're like okay but I have to stop like imposing everything but so many of the books that are are just like, um, what do you call it? Like, without examination, just be like, these are the books for children, like all the Roald Dahl books. Then you read them and you're like, but this is actually fucked up. Oh my God, like, Secret Seven and Famous Five and stuff that was in the local library. It was like a character called Fatty that always ate all the ices. And I mean, the f- parenting definitely, at, like between the Amoses is a, like a question, right? Of like the hero and the villain... The fact that they look so similar means that Martin Amos's whole like, oh, 
is it is there a mystery of my paternity is like a non-question because they're identical who do you think right. is more prestigious kingsley amos i think so. but who do you oh, think wrote martin. more i the think same? martin i would say martin 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 achieved like i feel oh, like he... this is so interesting okay can yeah, i quickly good. i could Fine. give you my pitch for the there is yes. one kingsley amos novel yeah, I want to hear both. yeah oh. okay before, before oh i want to read okay. it it's called the old devils it's a really late one it's from the 80s i think it won a prize and i don't know it's because if everyone loved it or if they were like give kingsley the prize because he's gonna die <laughs> you know what i mean um but the it's really nasty it's kind of it's about a guy who i think i can't remember if he goes home but he goes to a pub in wales and then he makes friends with all these guys who go to the pub every day to like sit around and drink and then like one by one okay. he just fucks all their wives me and my wife have these coffee mugs that match that say, like, don't talk to me before I fuck your wife. Because as a coffee thing, because I just think it's so funny. Like, I find the whole idea of, like, cuckolding that it's become, like, a pop culture thing. It's so medieval. It's so, what is going on? Straight culture, just like, you know, everything's been cut apart and it's all just free floating through the culture now. And so that that book is kind of beloved to me for that reason. <laughs> I'm going to steal next time I'm in your, your home. I'm going to... Look for one of those mugs and maybe requisition it. Totally. We got spare. <laughs> but yes, the old devils. Nasty. Really, really okay. nasty. Because Lucky Jim is the actual character. You do empathize with him. I mean, obviously, he's the narrator. Is he the narrator? No, it's just like close third or something. Yeah, close third. Um, but he does kind of ultimately come to the conclusion that he doesn't care about his work. Right, yeah. but up until the he, end, yeah. he persists in the delusion. Yeah, because by the end, he's like, "Was there?" And he was like, "There's something like, were there ever any, any period so nasty?" And he's like, and he's just like shits on it. And then, yeah, he he and Christine sort of go off into the sunset, and that, or and you're like, what what job is he going to do? Like, we don't know. It doesn't matter because he has Christine and her luscious body. <laughs> he's probably going to go work at the BBC. Like he would, <laughs> in a, I don't know, and he become turn, become walk into an AS by it novel instead. Well, Lydia, any final thoughts about Lucky Jim? Do you think it will forever stay unreread, or do you think you will all go back to it at some point? I would love to just stumble across it in like a hotel mini bar or something, and then just sit down with it and be so happy and. I'm, I, I'm, I don't think I'm going to like go out and buy it, but, but yeah, it, it does, it just stays in my mind at this sort of soft spot of like a person that I was and, and, you know, still am in some ways, but very notably like I'm not in others. Yeah. The ultimate structure of like the breakdown of the system, right. And he runs off it kind of like in mm -hmm. the, you know, the boarding school getting shot up in air for whatever, like, is that part of what appealed to you? Do you think? Yeah, that, I mean, there's a lot of like nihilism yeah. in it um, because he he he's just a hater. Like he hate, he has there's not a person in that he encounters in the entire book. He has all the, he lives in a boarding house too, and so there's this whole cast of like secondary characters. Well, there's one that he like admires and respects, who's some sort of solid working man with a virile mustache, and he has respect for him, but a little bit of fear. But then everyone else is just like shitty, unless it's Christine, who he like wants to have sex with, and. So I think that was very appealing to me for a while because I was very like, nothing matters. But now, but now I'm like, everything matters. Uh. <laughs> if only, you know, if you'd become a medievalist, then you would have. This is also why I sympathize because 
many medievalists, you know, they walk through the world feeling personally insulted by the ideology, you know, kind of like embodied in every object that is for sale or visible to them. So I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us, giving me an, an opportunity to remember this book, which was important to me and is a bit more complicated than I remember, actually. This is amazing. This was an education for me. Um, so thank you so much for having me. And yeah, a true honor and a bright spot in a horrible time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reading Writers. If you have any questions, requests, or thoughts about what we're reading, you can share them with us at readingwriterspod at gmail.com. 